Welcome to another episode of Walking the Talk. My name is Melissa, and today I'm really excited to be speaking to Robin van der Heiden, who is the founder and CEO of Many Requests. Hello, Robin. Hey, Melissa. Glad to be here. So excited to have you, um, especially because I think you have one of the most international and inspiring startup stories that I've heard up until this point, at least from the people that I've met up until this point. And I have a lot of questions for you because uh, originally you're from, from Belgium, but then you were in the Netherlands, then you were in Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand. So you've been to all kinds of places and you've already founded multiple co uh, companies. Um, do you maybe want to start by telling people what does Many Requests do? Yeah, so Many Requests is my current company and basically it's a software for agencies and productized services. So basically as an agency owner, you need a, a, a number of software, right? To run your business, you need a project management tool to run your project and you need maybe another tool to communicate with the customers and also another one to uh, send invoices and build customers. So we realized that need and I will explain it later in the podcast how we came up about finding that idea and we built that tool. And now it's been about a year that we've run that business And um, yeah, happy to answer any questions about it. That's really exciting. And many requests is based in Singapore, right? Yeah. So the company and actually the company that I ran before, Many Pixels, they are all registered in Singapore, mostly because it's so easy to register a company there. You can do it online. You don't have to go in person, even to open a bank account. Everything can be done remotely. And because all staff are based in many different countries, we thought that it was important to have a clear jurisdiction to, yeah, to hire our staff and to incorporate our company. I'm actually really surprised to hear that, that it's so easy because, well, at least my, my expectation was that, you know, if you, you're from Europe and then you go to Southeast Asia to found a company, that that would actually be really complicated because you don't speak the language and then just, you know, different systems, different rules and, Yeah, I'm really surprised sure. to hear. Yeah, I mean, if you compare it, most of uh, Southeast Asian countries, it's a little bit complicated as a foreigner to incorporate your company. For example, in Thailand or in Indonesia, you must have a local partner and you cannot own more than 50% of the company unless you have some special uh, authorizations from the government. But Singapore is a little bit like, uh, it's a modern country. So they really try to attract foreign investment because they're very small. Uh, they don't really have a big landmass, so they really f uh, rely on uh, tech companies and service companies and especially foreign companies to incorporate in their jurisdiction and to open bank accounts and, if possible, to hire local talent too. So, yeah, that's the reason why, uh, why we incorporated there because actually just before, um, before doing this company, I was in, in Jakarta in Indonesia and I had team members there. And I needed to incorporate the company in the region because I was living there and I wanted to build customers and also to send invoices with my business. So, yeah, that's the reason. So did you have local support in your founding team or was it just you? So my first company, uh, Many Pixels, when I, when I came to Southeast Asia three, three years ago, uh, it was just me. So I was alone. Um, I had a couple of... Um, of 
partners and contacts, right, to to give me some advice. For example, oh, how can you start a company in Singapore? But generally, it was it was kind of easy. You know, I just typed in Google how to register your company in Singapore <laughs> on the website, which was the most uh, user friendly, and uh, it was actually called Sleek. And that was really helpful. I mean, I just got on a call with them, asked a few questions, and then uh, the company was incorporated like a week later. So the process was wow. was really smooth, yeah. And why, I mean, before that, you were still in the Netherlands, right? You were studying in Maastricht, yay, Maastricht. Um, so, so how come you decided to go to Southeast Asia for creating your company in the first place? So when I was um, studying in Maastricht, uh, I studied law there, but I wanted to make some money as a student on the side. So I started a side hustle. I met a landlord which had about 150 properties and I kind of became friends with him. He actually was my landlord. And um, I said to him, oh, I can find international students for you to rent out the rooms, right? And at the beginning, it was just a side hustle. It made a few, uh, a few thousand dollars, I think $60,000. Uh, the first year, 60,000 euro. And then eventually, by the end of my studies, by the end of my master degree, the turnover was two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. So uh, it was kind of a big business, and we had an office in the city center. We even had some staff and one full-time employee that I hired from Belgium who came to work in the Netherlands. Um, so it was very, it was a business, and it, so it meant that I had to build a team, and I had to outsource staff as well. And I started looking for marketing help and especially design help. And I thought, okay, why not hire some staff abroad online? And I found that there were a lot of great designers in Indonesia that could um, do some Facebook ad graphics or some email newsletter graphics and that kind of stuff. So I started working with them and I realized, wow, there is a lot of talent there. So maybe you should create a company, an outsourcing company that helps, you know, bridge that talent, which is in Southeast Asia and maybe even in other parts of the world with companies in the US, Australia, UK where salaries are very high and the cost of living are very high also. So you need to delegate work and outsource work. And it was the right moment, I think, to, to start that company in Jakarta, Many Pixels, um, because it was the beginning of remote work and it was the beginning where people were collaborating online, you know, when Slack um, was started and a lot of other project management tools. So this was the, the right moment to, to start a company. That's so impressive, I think. Um, so did you decide right from the beginning, oh, I'm going to move to Jakarta for this? Or did you first think about the option about you staying in, in, in the Netherlands or going to Belgium or somewhere else in Europe and working remotely with, with the talent that you found? Yeah, very good question. So at the beginning, remote work was not so popular. Right? Most everybody was um, working at an office and even working with people abroad. It was not really common to just have remote teams. You would usually open an office there and work with them. But I decided that just that everybody would work remotely. But then it became a mess. You know, it was the beginning of the company. There were no processes in place. And I had about, I think, 10 designers at one point, And I was just contacting them on Skype. And it was not the perfect tool to, to manage a team. So I told them, OK, I'm going to come in two weeks to Jakarta and to Jog Jakarta. It's another city in Indonesia. And I will just meet you in person. We will have like a get together and maybe I will open an office as well, either in Jakarta or Jakarta, like a, a physical office. And I don't know if they believed me, but eventually I showed up in Jakarta. I stayed two weeks there. And then I stayed also two weeks 
in Jakarta, and I started to hire designers locally there. So I rented a house, an apartment near Starbucks, and for two weeks every day I would have interviews with designers, and I would tell them, okay, come with your laptop to Starbucks, show me your design portfolio. Uh, here's how much you will earn if you decide to accept the, the job, and then yeah, that's how it basically started. So. Uh, and I didn't have a company incorporated yet. So it was a bit like dodgy. It was like, I'm sure like they were like, oh, who is this foreigner uh, who is coming? And like, we don't really know what he has to, who he is, of he, he's going to pay us, etc. But I told them exactly what I wanted them to do. I was very clear. And eventually we built a team of 25 designers in less than six months. And um, yeah, that, that were the very beginning. Wow, that's incredible. I, I can imagine like it sounds it sounds perfectly structured. It sounds like the perfect plan to me. But like at any point, were you doubting yourself that this would actually work out? I mean, if they already thought, oh, who's this? I don't know, crazy person from Europe. Maybe you were also thinking, you know, you don't know exactly what to expect when you go to Jakarta. I've, I don't know if you've ever been there before. Yeah, so. In hindsight, it sounds that it was easy, right? I just went there, hired yeah. trainers, and everything was okay. But we had a lot of learnings and kind of small failures along the way. For example, at the beginning, I was just hiring the wrong type of people. I was just hiring freelancers. But what I actually needed is full-time committed employees. So we tweaked a little bit our ads or job offers and said, oh, this is what we are looking for. This is a full-time 40 hours a week job. Um, you'll have to work nine to five. And this is exactly what you would be doing. So I had a lot of learnings in terms of who I needed to be to be working with in terms of culture and expectations, but also how to manage the team and how to give them work and that kind of stuff. I was 25 at the time and I had never studied business and I had never run a company with that many people. I mean, the real estate company in, in back in Netherlands, it was just one full-time employee and a few students were helping out during high season. But this was like a proper outsourcing business with process and with a lot of clients. So we had 10,000 tasks requested by clients the first year. So I was a bit overwhelmed. And that's why I brought a co-founder about nine months after I was completely burned out. And I said to him, he's actually a guy from Maastricht University as well, um, Quentin. No way. And uh, I told him, uh, I really need some help. Uh, he was working at Lazada in, the, in, in Bangkok back then which is uh, basically like uh, Amazon for Southeast Asia. And so, and it was bought by Alibaba. And I told him, okay, uh, he quit his job and I told him, I really need some help. Can you come as a, as a consultant just to do our accounting and just to put our numbers together, but then just take on new projects. And he saw the numbers of the company, uh, which was doing between, I would say, 25K to 40K in turnover, uh, so US dollars. So it was kind of, It was significant, you know, for a company which was nine months ago. And then he realized, okay, there is an opportunity here. And so he took a, a full-time role and then eventually I gave him some equity. And the first thing that he did was to really structure and organize the process in the company, you know, like coming from a business background, usually they are more like, they, they love to do the boring stuff, like structuring, mm -hmm. creating. <laughs> I was more the starter who took the risk, went to Indonesia and created the idea, which is valuable as well. But eventually, if you want to create a real business, you need both. You need the, the creativity at the beginning and the risk, but you also need structure and processes and systems in place. And this is what he brought 
in the company. Speaking of risk, I know that, well, obviously in entrepreneurship, like from, from any sort of perspective, risk is a huge component. Um, but then they say like in finance, high risk, high reward. Um, but so a lot of founders are, you know, hesitate or aspiring founders, let's say, are also hesitating to do certain projects or to try it because they're afraid of the risk and that it might not work or that they fail. What made you believe that all of your plans are going to work? So um, I think there are different types of risk, right? I think if you, for example, graduate from university, from a law degree or business degree, you have the risk of not uh, having like a opportunity cost. So for example, instead of being a consultant at a top at a big four law, big law, four law firm, or like a magic circle law firm, for example, then starting your company might fail and then you have missed on your opportunities to actually build a career as a lawyer or as a consultant, right? So this is one risk. The other risk is actually failure and financial failure, for example, not having income for a couple of years and that kind of stuff. Personally, I mean, I always thought that I could go back and become a lawyer, even if I would become a lawyer at like 30 or 35. And I really needed this freedom and freedom of creativity and starting my own thing that I didn't really, it didn't really bother me, you know, like not having a career. I thought, oh, I don't really want to be a lawyer anyway. It doesn't really matter to me. I don't want to have a boss and work for someone. Uh, because simply I, I didn't feel fulfilled, right? I took some, I did some internships as well. And working in the internship, I thought this is not really for me. I want to try to create something. And then the financial risk uh, wasn't so big either because uh, it was like, first of all, the real estate company I had in the Netherlands, it was a service and I had some savings on the side. But that uh, second company, Many Pixels, was also a service and there was not really any big investment, right? You just have to hire a team And then you have to get customers that pay you more than your team cost. But there is no um, upfront cost such as research and development or like creating a product and having inventory and that kind of stuff. So I think for first-time entrepreneurs, creating a service or consulting or freelancing is a great way to, to get started. And then later in your journey, once you have some cash flow, once you know what customers, what problems customers care about, then you can start to productize your kind of experience or productize your service and either move to creating products or creating a software or any more scalable business. But at the beginning, creating a service was a really good move, I think, for for me. Uh, I can very much relate to that. I think you make a really great point there. Um, also because for myself, I also want to create a bigger business at some point. But then I also realized that I have so many like little fears uh, that stop me from just, you know, trying it. And it's sometimes I find it ridiculous that, you know, that that's the reason why I don't try it because I'm afraid. Um, but uh, for instance, this project, Walking the Talk, the podcast, the website, it's like this somewhat controlled little environment where I can try out things and also when I was freelancing that also helped me you know get to know certain processes and how to do things like you know how do you write an invoice it's very simple but it's a matter of actually doing it and I think personally my experience is once you've done something once it's so much easier to do it again that's true yeah that's very true I have a, another question, something that you've mentioned before as well. Um, you are very open about numbers, and I love that um, because what, from what I've seen, a lot of people are very, let's say, 
hesitate, very much hesitating to share that kind of information about their companies. So how come you're so open about, you know, turnover and, and recurring revenues? I've seen that in so many of your LinkedIn posts as well, where you're really active and sharing all this information about the, the process and the journey. Um, why is that? I think nowadays people online, they really crave for authenticity. So they really like people who are honest and real about what they are doing. And so when you show that you are transparent and authentic, people relate more to what you do and they think, oh, I kind of feel inspired by that person and I want to do the same. So they start to, to follow you and interact more with your content. So that's a great way to actually share stuff. Now we used to share our numbers for many pixels and many requests, we actually never shared them, but we still try to share uh, as much our numbers as possible, especially for example, like key metrics such as the growth rate or for example, a new amount of email subscribers or how we did a certain activity like growing our website and like growing a number of leads, that kind of stuff. So uh, we still try to give numbers because I mean, numbers are, are facts, right? It's like objective. And so if you say, for example, if you write a blog post and you say, oh, how we grew our email list with 10,000 new email subscriber in like six months, people will actually think, oh, that sounds great. I want to do the same for my business as well. And mm -hmm. we are targeting our entrepreneurs. So uh, this was a good way to, to reach out to them. So transparency is, uh, is very important in that sense. Now, of course, if you share your number, sometimes there is the, the fear that it could attract people to copy you. And sometimes if your numbers don't look great as well, it's, um, I mean, how do you, how do you do it? Do you still stay transparent or do you start hiding your numbers? So you have to make a wise decision as regard to sharing it or not. Like a decision. That would be really, that would actually be a really difficult decision to make. I think like, especially if things have been going well and then suddenly they don't, do you continue or do you stop sharing? Though I do have the impression you would continue, right? Yeah, I would continue because uh, I think vulnerability is also important, you know, to make people trust you and identify yourself to you. If you check a movie or a story, the, the superhero usually is struggling at the beginning or at one point of the story. And if people are always winning, I mean, we don't really like it. We like to see somebody who is struggling and then overcome his struggles. So I think it's a, it's a good way to show your failures and vulnerability as well. I love the analogy, but it's very true. That's like one of the key components of good storytelling, the struggle, how to overcome it. So you, many requests, um, well, is your company right now, but many pixels also still exist. So it's not like the company ceased to exist once you, well, once you moved on. Um, what... What kind of like point in it, in the development did you reach where you were thinking about starting another business, moving on from your CEO role in many uh, many pixels to to a new company? What what kind of stage were you at? So first of all, I realized that there was an opportunity for more and more entrepreneurs to to create agencies and online service businesses, right? Because it was a bit the rise of tools such as slack and remote work so i thought more and more people are going to work online so and create their businesses as a result so i wanted to create a software company to address that need and to to fix the problem of a specific niche and with my experience of many pixels you know of running that business which was an agency i thought 
or we needed a dashboard back then to, to run that company. So I'm going to build that software, which actually I had built before to solve the problems at, uh, at many pixels. So um, this was the reason. So first of all, I saw a need. And then the second reason was that uh, I had two other co-founders and one of them was a software developer and another one was a business guy. And my role is also more like business. So I didn't really see myself much needed anymore at many pixels. So I sold almost all of my share. So 80% of my shares, I sold them. I still own a few now, uh, but I sold my shares uh, back to the co-founding team. Wow. But um, so when you equated many requests, that's, it sounds, well, it sounds similar because, well, it, the name is kind of an adaptation. So it looks like it's building on top of many pixels. But from what I hear, it's actually very different. Like you said, the first one was more like an agency. So you needed the designers, but then this one is really a software product, right? Exactly. Yeah. So can you code? No, actually, I cannot code. So my co-founder, no, of my requests is a software engineer. Mm -hmm. And all the employees in the company are all software engineers as well. How did you meet them, especially your co-founder? Yeah, I met him online, actually. Uh, I saw he was starting his software company. But then I reached out to him and I said, hey, look, I have an audience. Already. I have the distribution in place. So maybe we should partner up. You know, you are good at coding and this is the value that you bring, but I'm good at acquiring customers and building a team so perhaps you should partner together and he immediately said yes we got on a couple of calls to share the vision that we had together uh, like for example where do you want to be in a few years or why do you do this of course it's for the money but we try to look a little bit at the motivations what do you like to do on a daily basis and trying to also get to know each other better because we will be partner for the long term so um, we worked but I actually only met him for the first time Uh, like nine months ago, I flew to, to Vietnam. So he was living, he's living there with his girlfriend. He's from Venezuela. And so I met him for the first time and I was like, wow, this is crazy. We, we run a company, we raise some funds. So we raised some funds from a, a venture capitalist in the US. And we had, I had never met my co-founder before. So um, yeah, that was, uh, that was a bit the journey, uh, how it went. Oh, that's crazy. You're running a company together and haven't met in person before. That's, But it fits so very well with like your overall vision of these companies, because at the at its core, like you said, it's about, you know, remote work is becoming a thing. It's developing and becoming more common, people creating their businesses online. So I don't know. I mean, it's crazy, but at the same time, it also fits very well to like your very core of the company. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Most of the interesting people that I've met over the last year are only people that I've met online. When I was in my hometown or even in Maastricht, I mean, I met a couple of interesting people, but the internet opens the doors to meet so many interesting people because simply we have a lot of communities, right, on the internet. And that community where I met my co-founder um, was a community of entrepreneurs wanting to build profitable companies. So this resonated a lot. We, we already kind of were aligned even before meeting each other and i think that's why the internet is so nice it's because there are so many small niche communities where you can meet people that have the same goals as you and perhaps your first your future co-founder or business partner or employee so yeah i mean that's uh, that was a process i completely agree actually my my previous podcast guests i mean only three of them so far 
But those, except for one, I met him uh, here in Lisbon. But the other two, I only met them online as well. And they were super nice and we got along so well. And that's why we also created our podcast episodes in German. Uh, but I can very much relate to to the possibilities that the internet gives us, especially in the crazy times that we're in right now. But also in general, um, like if you move around that much, like you do, I mean, that's that's crazy. Like I thought I'm moving around quite a lot because whenever people ask me, so where do you go next? It's like not a different city, but like a different country or a different continent. Uh, at least that's what it feels like. Um, so people are all over the place and it's really nice to, to keep in touch, but also to, to build new relationships online. That's true. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was thinking of another question a second ago. Oh yes, right. You mentioned that, um, you also, um, raised some capital from a VC company. And I actually was reading a book up until two days ago where I finished it. It's called Lost and Founder. And, um, the author is talking about the the mentality of venture capital companies uh, among other topics. And so what he was also discussing is about, you know, as a founder, if you want to raise capital from a VC, you really need to be aware of, of the agenda of a venture capital fund. So um, you said you raised capital from a US VC for many requests. Can you yeah. maybe elaborate a little bit on what you were thinking about like beforehand? You well, obviously you probably needed money to 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 grow in some way, but how did you decide what kind of capital you wanted in your company? Yeah, so the the venture capitalist we raised money from is called Ernest Capital. Um so they are actually a bit different than most venture capitalists that you hear from Silicon Valley or from New York or even from London and that kind of stuff that only hire and only invest in very high growth company. And so usually how traditional venture capitalists work, they will make an investment in a hundred companies and they hope that one company will be a billion dollar company or more and will actually be the winner of the fund. They don't, don't, they don't really care about the 99 other companies that have failed. And they don't care about you as a funder if you have failed as long as one company in their portfolio work, right? So this is what they do. But this venture capitalist that we met, uh, it's a smaller fund. I think it's only a couple of millions a year that they invest. And I think like five or 10 million, I don't remember the exact amount. Um, so don't, uh, don't quote me on this. But basically they invest in profitable companies, profitable SaaS companies speci uh, specifically. Um, so the founder of that VC firm, He built his SaaS business called Store Mapper. Uh, he's called Tyler Tringas. And he actually sold it to a private equity firm in the US. So he didn't take any funding when building his SaaS company and he eventually sold his company and got really usually successful with a sale. And then he started his fund. And he realized why are all the venture firms only investing in startups that have a high chance of failure, even though they can be really big? Why don't we invest also in businesses that can still be successful, but not billion dollar companies, maybe multi-million dollar companies, and then try to find an investment structure that fits their profile. So the deal we had with Ernest Capital is something that is similar to debt, but it's not debt because we, if we don't repay it, they will not take our company. It's um, something called a seal. So it's called a shared earning uh, agreement where basically when we hit a certain level of revenue, we'll start paying back a part of the investment that we received. 
the investment that we received. So it's uh, something like a revenue share with a cap. So once we start to hit certain revenue, so that they set uh, an amount which is actually really high, um, we will start repaying it. If we don't hit that revenue threshold, we will never repay them. And, and that's it, right? Uh, but this is basically how they structure the investment. And so how it works for raising funds from them, I actually saw a tweet from the founder, Tyler. I was following him on Twitter. And I knew somebody who got some funds from him. It's like my friend Riley from uh, Hostify. And I told Riley, oh, I saw he's actually investing in company. I just built my SaaS. Do you think we should we will be a fit? And then he asked me a couple of questions and made an introduction. And then I got a, on a call with Tyler, the general partner at the firm. And I was very enthusiastic about what I had built. I told him about my story of many pixels. And he really believed in the market as well and in what we were building, even though we had no revenue. I think when he invested, we our revenue were so small. It was like like an idea almost. And eventually invested. I made a, a pitch deck in like 10 minutes or five minutes even on Google Docs. It was really crappy. I will share it one day on my blog. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and eventually, uh, within a week, he invested. Uh, he, I mean, the papers were signed and we got the money in the bank within a month. So the process was really smooth. So if you want to build a company that is a software company and that is still scalable, but don't really have the ambitions of being a billion dollar company, but want to focus on profits first, you, I would actually recommend that fund. And this doesn't mean that you don't, cannot have like big ambitions, right? You can still do an IPO one day or raise, raise follow-on fundings. So that's still possible. It's just that that venture capitalist won't push us to grow at all costs. They will care about our product and care about profitability first. Wow, I've never heard about this type of investment before. I find this really interesting. Um, also because yeah. so many companies, well, also from a statistical perspective, it's very it's very unlikely that you hit the billion dollar jackpot with whatever it so, is that you're yeah. doing. And you know, as a founder, you only have like a few shots, right? You have one or two shots. So if you spend like five years of your life trying to do a billion dollar startup and it eventually fails, the venture capitalists don't care, right? Because they've invested in 99 other companies. They will not waste their time. They only waste it maybe like a million dollars on you. But uh, as a founder, you've wasted your time, your money, years of, uh, of maybe a very low salary. So it's, uh, it's, not, it's not that nice, right? And uh, I mean, entrepreneurship is inherently risky. And startups are even riskier than this because usually as a startup, what you do is that you start a new model, right? You don't try to copy something new. You just try to take a new market by storm and you try to capture it and eventually become a, a billion dollar company, right? You try to right. capture a trend. But this is not proven at all and this has a high chance of failure. Whereas my company, many requests, of course, it's innovative in a way. I mean, we are doing new things, but there are tons of project management tools here and we only target a very small niche market that we understand which is agency owners. And this is like already less risky because we know the market, uh, we know there is demand for it and we had even payments before we built our software. So this kind of, um, of market is not in the radar of venture capitalists because if I try to raise money from, let's say, a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley and say, oh, we built a software for agency owners, they will ask me, oh, what is the market size of agency owners? Maybe it's like a billion dollar or, or whatever, maybe more even, but 
uh, unless you can prove you can be really big and capture the entire market, um, this is going to be difficult for, for someone to raise funds. Definitely. The venture capitalists always like to see the charts and the numbers. <laughs> exactly. But if you, uh, if you go to earnest capital uh, and tell them, okay, I have this niche and I have a way to reach that niche and build this business and in that size and become profitable, then they will be interested uh, in it way more than just a VC where your the opportunity is too small for them. Makes sense for sure. Uh, I think I'm definitely going to have a look at that because I, I like the idea of it. Um, and um, what did I want to say? Oh, yes, right. Um, do you know that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, like once they've been successful or maybe even made an exit in some way, um, they tend to invest in other startups most of the time, you know, to give back, but of course also to put their money that they've made to good use. Is that something that you consider doing as well? Uh, you mean good use, like investing in nonprofits or giving away your money? Um, maybe it's it's a possibility, but I'm more thinking in terms of, for instance, angel investments. Oh, right. Well, angel investments, like we just discussed, is super risky, right? You have like you have to make 100 angel investment and maybe you'll have one which will be successful and will return your the, the, the total amount of your investment. So to be honest, I'm not doing that yet. The only money that I invest is in real estate and index funds. So this is the kind of like money which is kind of safe. And still, I mean, even invest index fund, I'm still uh, researching about it. And um, I'm not doing like kind of risky investment like startups, but Maybe if I have like a multi-million dollar exit, I'm going to try to invest in a fund or something like this um, as part of a, as a limited partner. Mm -hmm. But you know, like it's a lot about connections and network for finding the right startups to invest in. And a lot happens in the hotspots like New York or Silicon Valley. And so you have to have an intro. And the best startups, they are very difficult to invest in. Usually the, like investors throw themselves at them. So you really need to have an kind of insider circle to find them so no i'm not doing any angel investments for now i'm just saving my money and actually the money that i made from uh my first company the real estate i just got some some real estate some real estate in the netherlands and then the second company many pixels i invested all of my money in many requests because we really needed some some funds you know to have a software development team a full time to to run it so yeah of course so if you look into the future, how, what do you see? Do you think you're going to stick with many requests for, for the foreseeable future? Or are you already thinking about, you know, even other companies that you might create at some point? Yeah, so I have a little bit the entrepreneur disease of always having new ideas. But I think it's turned on over the last year or so. I have, I have some ideas, but then I think more and more it's all about the execution and I already have this successful company, Many Request, which is growing well. We grew by 350%. I just checked this morning in the last six months. So this is really crazy growth right now. Um, so I'm really focusing on that. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to put my ideas within the company, inside the company. Like, how can we generate more leads? How can we uh, manage the team better? How can we document our processes better? So you can still be very creative inside a company and trying to make your company bigger instead of trying more and more ideas because eventually you know the value that you create it compounds right the more you stay at a company 
the more the better uh, known your brand becomes, the more mm-hmm. leads, you have, the more channels you understand to you the, the channels you understand how to use them better the marketing channels and so yeah right now i'm focusing on on many requests and who knows in a few years maybe i will do something else but uh, i really enjoy running the software it's very it's a very varied job you have to create the product you have to do some marketing and um, manage the team and customer service so it's a great uh, work to do on a day-to-day basis and like i said we are niche software so our customers are agency and we we really know who our customers are and it's very highly targeted. So I built a community around around this software and I I really enjoy it. It's like a small family almost with our customers and our team. And this is really enjoyable to, to run and work. So I see myself doing this in the foreseeable future. I can imagine that that's a very fulfilling feeling. I hope that makes sense. Like, like just the, the experience of it and it energizes. If I've I've experienced that in in a different context, but I I know that kind of feeling. It's it's pure happiness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's above money as well. You know, money is just uh, showing you that okay, things are working well, and you can pay your team. But uh, on a day to day basis, I really enjoy doing it um, for sure. Yeah. Nice. I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm seeing that we are almost approaching the end of the podcast, but I still have one very important question for you. Based on everything that we've talked about, is there still something else that you would like to pass on to other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs that they should, something that they should know? Um, Sure. So if you want to learn more about uh, what I'm doing, I run a community on Facebook, a Facebook group called Productized Community. And if you are at the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey, or if you want to know more about how to create service business, I think it's a great model of entrepreneurship, either consulting, freelancing, or creating an agency. And I'm not saying that only because I have a software for agencies, but I think it's a great way to build cash flow and not to take too many risks at the beginning of your entrepreneurial career. You probably have one or two skills you are good at. I don't know if you studied business, you're probably good at Uh, data or analytics or even accounting so you can find ways to productize your skills and to offer them at scale so if you are interested to talk about this feel free to reach out to me and uh, yeah otherwise um, that's it just uh, go for it and do what you like that's also one of my kind of uh, advice Uh, don't get stuck in a job you really hate if you think entrepreneurship is your i mean it's your calling right right I completely relate to that for sure. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure a lot of other people do as well. So it's it's great advice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, that is it. I'm definitely going to make sure to link to, to your company um, in, in the description box. Um, if people want to reach out to you directly, is that possible? Yeah, they can reach out directly to me. So they can reach out to me actually on Twitter or add me on LinkedIn. So Twitter is vinrob92, V-I-N-R-O-B, 92. And on LinkedIn, it's Robin van der Heyden. So, yeah. I'll put those links in the description box as well. Thank you so very much for your transparency and your openness. This was an absolute pleasure to have you in the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for giving me the opportunity and have a great day ahead. Thank you, you too. And to everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed it. 
And if you haven't already done so, make sure to hit the follow button so that you will be notified of all the new podcast episodes that are coming. And I wish you all a great day as well. And see you next time.